You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, good morning. It's a great rainy morning, and I'm so glad to see you. Uh, we were wondering for a minute if anybody was going to be here. Uh, hey, if you've got your Bibles, go to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, that's where we're going to be. Last week we began uh, kind of a new series. We, we, we've been talking about wisdom all summer long, and, and this is a little bit of an extension of wisdom. Uh, but in the month of August, we're talking about a, a better way, and I probably forgot to mention that last week. I was a little... Uh, rusty after being gone for a couple of Sundays, but I'm back this morning. I feel good. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not rusty anymore, and so this is actually week two of A Better Way. And so last week what we did is we looked at Nehemiah, and uh, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra was opening God's Word, and uh, all the people there were gathered. The, the text says they were gathered, united there, gathered as one man. Um, as they, they were a community, people who were gathered to be shaped by God's Word, after, after they built the, the, the walls around Jerusalem, they had an identity, and they wanted their identity to be formed by God, by what God said, and by who God was, who God is. And so that's what we looked at. And in that passage, we saw actually how it took place, that there was a bunch of people, and Ezra was only one man, and not only that, Ezra was a man that knew that teaching God's Word wasn't about himself, and so what was most important was the hearing of God's Word, but not only the hearing, but the hearing and the understanding of God's Word, that people not only heard God's Word, but they understood God's Word. And so to ensure that, We saw in the text there were multiple teachers with Ezra, and there were at least three layers of instruction. And the first one was sort of the public reading and teaching from a a platform, from a pulpit that they had made. And Ezra would teach um, all of the people that were gathered. The the other layer, second layer of instruction, was sort of this small group instruction where they would… Uh, the dialogue would take place. The teachers would fan out. They would gather small groups of people. They would uh, read the Word again. They would talk about it. They would make sure that it was understood so that God's Word wasn't just heard and it wasn't just taught, but that it was understood because that was vital. And so we made that application. Listen, we've got to be not just here on on Sunday mornings. We want to be a people who gather in small groups. We not just hear a monologue about God's Word, but we're in dialogue with God's Word, God's people about God's Word. The third layer of instruction, we didn't really get to it, we alluded to it, but um, it was a, the third layer of instruction that's in Nehemiah 8 is actually the layer of the, of the home. There's family instruction, God's Word, so it's not only heard and the family uh, was under the teaching of God's Word, and then family members discussed God's Word with other believers, but the third layer was sort of in the home, in the, in the neighborhood, in, in the market where it's, where it's lived out. And so you had dads and moms, and they looked for opportunities in the normal activities of life and and sort of the ordinary living, you know, the going to school and the doing homework and having a job and paying bills and and, and, and chores around the house and going out to dinner and then playing Little League and having birthday parties. I mean, they looked for ways to apply God's Word, opportunities to apply God's Word to life all around all the time. So, you know, 
driving home from a game that you lost or cleaning up after a birthday party, after you got a couple of gifts that you didn't really like. You get a sour face, and you talk to your kids about it. Applying God's Word, how you do your chores with excellence, and try to find joy in them even when you don't want to do chores. I mean, you're looking for ways to talk about God's Word and, 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 and who God is and who you are as God's people all the, all the time. And you tuck your kids in at night and talk about what you're going to pray about what you're thankful about. All the time, it's this third layer of instruction. And so, all three layers of that instruction are there in Nehemiah 8. And we talked about how important it is that God's Word is at the center of God's people because it defines who we are. God is who defines who we are. And He does it through His Word. Well, this morning, and in the second part of the series, number two, week number two, I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And the topic is biblical leadership. So, as we're talking about a, at a, about a better way, uh, the, one of the things that we want to talk about is biblical leadership. And it's fitting to do that this morning. In the second hour, we are going to, on this campus, um, commission. We're going to pray over, lay hands on, commission uh, two new deacons on this campus. And in fact, on all the campuses, we're going to be uh, doing the elders and, and deacons on all of our uh, campus. On this campus, uh, Bob Majors and Stephen Sepulveda, uh, the two deacons uh, that are going to be commissioned here, uh, lay hands on them. They're going to be our new deacons here on the South Campus. But biblical leadership… And the way we talk about it here at the South Campus, here at, the, at Bethel and all the campuses, is, is we, we say it this way. It's part of our vision statement, building leaders to the glory of God. In fact, the whole vision statement is growing communities, building leaders, and living generously to the glory of God. That that's what we're all about. That that's the better way. It's so that it brings up the question, well, a better way to, to what? A, a better way of what? I'm so glad you asked. So, f first, let's answer a better way as we look at opposed to what. And I might say it this way, as a better, a better way as opposed to what we might call our, our natural way. So, if you went to the book of Proverbs like we did earlier this summer, Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but its end is the way to death. In the book of Judges, you find out that the Judges, I mean, it's just a terrible thing. They, 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 it says that the, the commentary on Judges, on the period of the Judges in the Old Testament is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There was no leader. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses, he's talking to the generation, the children of the people wandered in the wilderness. They're going to go into the promised land, and he's recounting the history. He's telling them about the Exodus when they came out. 
And he's telling them about when God was giving them the law, and, and it, it was law for when they went into the promised land, how they were to live together, how they were to be a community, how they were to be God's people. And he says, look, these commands, what God tells you, it's for your good, because if, it, if not, if you don't have leadership, if, if you don't have a direction, if you don't have an identity, if you don't know who you are, if you're not living under the authority of who God is… And by His goodness, He gives this to you. Everyone will end up doing what's right in their own eyes. Deuteronomy 12, 8, that's what it says. So that's our default. What we think is right. We know it's our default. The sage of the Proverbs says it leads to death. In fact, he calls it the way of the fool. The, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. That's what he'll say in Proverbs 12. So the Apostle Paul, so he knows all about this. He's, he's lived much of his life this way. That's his story. That's his background. And he's keenly aware that that's the default mode of the human brain, of the human heart. And so that's why he's writing this letter to Timothy. And it's a pastoral letter. Timothy, he's a young pastor in this uh, city at the time called Ephesus. And Ephesus is a church that Paul had planted, and he spent three years there. He taught the whole counsel of God, he said in Acts 20. And he proclaimed the gospel to the city, and he loved the people of God, and he'd seen men come to faith and mature in that faith and become elders and become deacons, and, he, and they devoted their life to serve God's people, the body of Christ, the, the, the church. And so, but Paul was gone from there now, and he was in prison, and so he'd sent Timothy to carry on what he'd started. And so he sent Timothy to Ephesus to pastor the church. And at the top of Paul's mind are these instructions to Timothy to make sure that God's Word was taught and that people understood it and that there were leaders in the church to ensure that believers were cared for and that they didn't lose sight of God's Word, the, the truth of God's Word, the, the truth of who they are as God's people. In other words, to ensure that the church was, he, he'll say it, holding fast, we might say it, holding fast to the to the better way. The better way is the way of the gospel. Paul, in, in his letter to Timothy, describes the gospel as the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I've been entrusted. That's the way he says it. He, he describes it as the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the grace of God that came through Jesus because Jesus died on His behalf. Jesus took Paul's place on the cross. Jesus died for Paul's sins. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. Jesus gave His life up as a ransom for our life. Everything we are, Jesus became and died for us. So that everything He is, and perfect and righteous and we could become. That's the gospel. He did it all. But the gospel's being threatened in Ephesus, in the church in Ephesus. And there were some people inside of the church, and there were some people that had come from outside of the church, um, from another town, I guess, and they'd started teaching in the church. And they were teaching what seemed right to them. And here's how Paul describes it. In, in chapter 1, he says there were certain people, they were teaching different doctrines, myths and genealogies and speculations. 
says it right off the bat. They were getting everybody stirred up. They were calls it vain discussions. This means everybody was wagging their tongue and they were having all these arguments. They said, well, this way is right and this way is right. And everybody's opinion matters. And, and what matters most is what you think and how you. And so it describes the people as they desired to be teachers of the law, Paul says, without understanding either what they were saying or the things about which they were making confident assertions. So they were teaching, but they had no idea what they were saying. They had no understanding at all. And yet it seemed to sound good to people. It, I mean, it, it sounded convincing at least. But the content, what they were saying, had nothing to do with faith in Jesus. It had nothing to do with the grace of God. It had everything to do with moralism and legalism and rules and behavior. And it was self-improvement and self-empowering and self-exalting. And, and, and you know what? It had everything to do with, you know what, we, we, we've just, our answer to this is we've got to separate from the people around us. What they were teaching was a heresy, myths, genealogy, speculation. We don't know exactly the content, but, but we can guess from what Paul writes that there was this sectarian preaching. They were preaching exclusivity. You do this, you look this way, you keep all these rules. You're from this certain race, you have this certain genealogy. You speak this certain language without an accent. They were teaching superior race kinds of things. In their day, it was anti-Gentile. In many ways, it's not far from what we've seen in Charlottesville this weekend, is it? I mean, you watch the news. There was a group called Unite the Right. They marched in Charlottesville, a mass of, of white people carrying torches. And so they went to protest the, the city. They, the city was going to remove a statue of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee from the city's Emancipation Park. It was organized by a guy named Jason Kessler. I did a little research. Jason Kessler, it's not hard. You can Google his name. He comes up. He's a white supremacist. He's a racist. And then along with him were, were several other guys and organizations. One of those uh, was an organization called the Traditionalist Workers' Party. Their leader was Matthew Heimbach. He was scheduled to speak. He was all a part of it, helped organize it. The Traditionalist website, worker, the Traditionalist Worker Party website, you can go on it. They have three pillars. Here's what they are. You ready? Faith, family, and folk. Under faith, this is what it says. The Traditionalist Worker Party stands for strong morals as the bedrock of our society. This morality calls each man, woman, and child to abide by the principles and values of honor, love, sacrifice, and charity. Our party is made up of members of the traditional faiths of the European people. You can read white people there. Under folk, this is what it says. We in the traditionalist worker party fight for the interests of white Americans only by securing a homeland for a national community run for and by our people with true self-determination can we truly have a future for our blood and our culture. We're unapologetically nationalists fighting to secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. 
It's racism. It's white supremacy. It's the denial that every person bears the image of God. It is not Christian. Does not bear the name of faith. No matter what they gather in or what they call it, it is not the church of Jesus. Al Mohler writes, I would argue that racial supremacy in any form or white supremacy as a central issue of our concern is a heresy. Separation of human beings into ranks and superiority and inferior, inferiority differ, differentiation by skin is a direct assault upon the doctrine of creation and an insult to the imago Dei, the image of God in which every human being is made. Racial superiority is also directly subversive to the gospel of Christ, effectively reducing the power of substitutionary atonement and undermining the faithful preaching of the gospel to all persons and to all nations. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, says it's from hell. That's where he said this kind of teaching is from. In 1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Much more to say about this from the letter. I did it. And, I'm, and I'm ranting because the church has to speak out about this. Moralism, legalism, rules, separationism, self-empowering, self-exalting, self-improvement. Listen, none of that leads to salvation. Nobody can save themselves. And Paul will say they make a shipwreck of their faith. the longest introduction I've ever done. And I'm not done yet. So Malcolm Gladwell, love him or hate him, I, I don't know. He has this, he writes, you know, Blink and Outliers and, you know, you've read him. Or if you haven't, you should, he's great. But he's got this podcast, Revisionist History. This is the very first episode on the Revisionist History. It's called The Lady Vanishes. I won't spoil what the podcast is about if you want to listen to it. But in it, he talks about the social phenomenon. And the social phenomenon is called moral licensing. This is why morality doesn't work. This is why the message of, look, we're just going to improve ourselves. We're just going to be better. We're just, we're just going to embark upon self-improvement. We'll separate. We'll just, we'll just make ourselves. We're going to save ourselves. This is what all this teaching is. He calls it moral licensing. He, he observed He didn't come up with it. He's using it. He's observing. He's talking about it. He, he says it this way. It's where good people... He's not good people. He says where people do good things as an excuse to do bad things afterwards. Past good deeds can liberate individuals to engage in behaviors that are immoral, unethical, or otherwise problematic. Behaviors that would otherwise avoid, they would avoid for fear of feeling or appearing immoral. So look, you, you do a good thing, morality, 
And it gives you license later to do something bad that maybe you wouldn't have ever thought to do otherwise. That's how our hearts work. We're told in the Old Testament our hearts are more desperately wicked than we could possibly imagine. He goes, here's a couple of examples. Once a person does something good, they believe it gives them license to do something bad. Going to the gym in the morning may strengthen your conception of yourself as a healthy person, but also undermine it by giving you license to drink a milkshake because, after all, you're a health-conscious person, so it must be okay. See, you're guilty. I just don't go to the gym. I drink the milkshake. All right. So he, there's a study done. Talking about self-destructive antisocial behavior, the darker side of goodness, these doctors gave sugar pills to 74 smokers, telling half the group they were taking vitamin D. After completing an unrelated survey, the smokers who were told they could smoke if they desired, individuals who believed that they'd taken a healthy dose of vitamin D smoked twice as many cigarettes as those who had taken, who, who, who didn't think they'd taken that. Well, I took vitamin D, must be okay. He goes on to say, look, it even works. They, told, they, they um, um, informed charitable givers, humanitarian donors, of their past gifts. They said, hey, this is what you gave in the past. By just telling them what they gave in the past, immediately reduced their charitable giving the next year, making them aware of it. So, oh, I already did something good. More insidious, he goes on, is this moral licensing. The idea when a door opens for an outsider, it gives, us, gives the status quo justification to close the door again. So this is Gladwell. Agree with him or not agree with him? He says, it happened after Barack Obama's U.S. presidential election. For many, having elected a black president gave free reign for racism. Far from leading America towards some Post-racial society, Obama's presidency seems, at least in the short term, to have exacerbated racial divisions in the country with animus boiling over. In 2016, with an election of a man attracting the support of segments of white America opposed to immigration, Muslims, and non-white minority groups. Moral licensing. Morality is not the answer. I'll give you one more example, and then I'm done with my introduction. Jesus in Luke chapter 11, a Pharisee wants to come have dinner with Jesus. He says, okay, let's have dinner. But then the Pharisee picks a fight with Jesus, which is never a good thing. I mean, if you're going to pick a fight with somebody, don't pick it with Jesus. That's what I'm saying. So Jesus turns and, and starts in on the Pharisee with a series of woes. Woe to you, Pharisees. This is never good. And all the other Pharisees are like, hey, look, we didn't pick the fight. It was just that guy. But he goes in on him. He says, hey, look, you tithe mint and rue and every herb. You tithe out of your spice rack. 
You want to show how moral you are and how you keep the law. You, you tie that to your spice rack. But you neglect justice and the love of God. In other words, in your morality and your legalism, you are extreme. But you neglect justice. You turn a blind eye to widows. You don't care for your parents. You don't love people. You do what's right in your own eyes. And you fail to see. You're blind to the truth of God. You're blind to who you are about yourself. Your morality doesn't make you better. It only ends up being a disguise for your self-indulgence. So much more we could say about this. Listen, you want to know the trajectory of eternity? The trajectory of eternity is Revelation chapter 7. It is not separation. It is every tribe, tongue, nation, language, people united, gathered around the throne. They're all saying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If you don't like it now, you'll hate it then. So Paul wants Timothy to make sure this false teachings and every other false teaching and heresy that drags people away from the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. It's the better way. Because we can't save ourselves. That the church would be the light of the gospel of the world. He calls it the pillar and buttress of truth. Timothy, you've got to teach these things and read Scripture and immerse yourself in it and raise up leaders because you can't do it by yourself. So he instructs them how right in the middle of this letter how to raise up men to lead with him because the church is desperately in need of leaders, biblical leaders, because they're for our good and for our faith and for God's glory and for the church's protection and for the teaching and understanding of God's Word, for the clear message of the gospel to be preserved and held on too tightly and proclaimed because it's the hope of the world. Without leadership, without biblical leadership, motivated by love and a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, it's all the things Paul says in this letter, we make a shipwreck of the steel. Right in your own eyes is what rules the day. So here we are, 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's only a 30-minute introduction. Here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is what he says, verse 1. This is a trustworthy saying. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So a word about this word overseer. The New Testament knows two offices in the church, okay? So he's going to address both of them here. One's a deacon, and there's no way I'm going to get to deacon in this sermon. 
but most everything I have to say in the front part of this applies to the back part of this, except for one bit, and that's the teaching part. But there's two offices. So in, in this first office, you have overseer, but you also have it described. Another word that's used in the New Testament is pastor. Another word used is, is shepherder, uh, elder, pastor, overseer. Pastors, the Latin word is, it means shepherd. Overseer, so a shepherd, you, you care, it's, it's shepherding, it's caring, it's, it's, um, um, it's, it's, it's that kind of a ministry. It, it's, it's a complex ministry. Overseer exercises oversight, they're guardians. Elder implies someone's mature, they exercise authority. All these words are necessary because it's, a, it's this complex role in the life of the church. And Paul sees, uses plurality, is plurality of elders that lead the church. All right. in, in fact, in 1 Peter, he uses all three of them. I exhort elders among you as fellow elder uh, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd. So elders, shepherd, the flock of God that's before you, exercising oversight or serving as an overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eager. So that's the first thing. An elder is a pastor is a shepherd. And then he goes on, listen to this. Therefore, an overseer must be, and he's going to give these qualifications, must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. You know, as you hear the list, as I read the list, one of the things that strikes you is this. It's kind of unreasonable, isn't it? I mean, the qualifications are all used other places in the New Testament as, as what the New Testament expects or demands or calls all believers to. I mean, you mustn't get drunk, be the husband of one wife, manage your household well. It doesn't mean the elders don't get drunk and the rest of us party. Or that managing our households isn't important if we're, if we're not elders or husband of one wife, or whatever that means, only elders have to live you know, by that, one wife at a time rule. I mean, it's a little surprising, don't you think? There's nothing about education, nothing about school you graduated from, nothing about natural leadership ability, what your job is, what your position is. There's no resume. There's nothing about being an extrovert, nothing about not being poor. This is no in, this is instructional leadership. It's not an elite crowd here as we might define it. What we notice, though, is what's mandated in the community of believers, what's, what, the, what the New Testament calls the community of believers to be is exemplified in the elders. The life of the elder reflects the Christian identity an identity in 
Christ. And two exceptions would be able to teach. Although to some degree we're, we're all called to share our faith and not being a recent convert. So I'm going to quickly walk through these. Above reproach. Blameless, not, not perfection, but no obvious inconsistencies. Husband of one wife, there are several views here. Um, we take it Bethel, that means not having been married before, although it doesn't make divorce an unforgivable sin. Um, very, very possibly was, might have had to do with, with polygamy as a symbol of status or secular success, but um, it's a much debated topic. We, we take it as, as um, those who have never been married before. It does not disqualify single people, however. Sober-minded, clear-headed, not an extremist. You're not a nut. Self-controlled. We've been given us, not been given a spirit of fear, but a power and love and self-control. Respectable, not pompous or arrogant, but one that's respected. Hospitable it means you you care for people. In seminary, I heard a bunch of guys say, man, I really love studying in the Bible. I really love the ministry. It's the people I don't really like. That's not hospitable. <laughs> Able to teach. It means you understand God's Word. Able to communicate it in a way that others understand it. And listen, there's many different settings for teaching. It doesn't mean you have to teach from a pulpit. Could mean that, could mean preaching, could, could mean a small group setting, could mean one-on-one -on -one discipleship, and there's also many different age groups that that applies to. Listen, I have the gift of teaching, but you, you put me over in children's ministry with a bunch of fourth graders, and you'd have serious doubts about that. They would too. Not a drunkard, I mean, not a slave to alcohol, not violent, but gentle, patient, kind, not bad-tempered, not quarrelsome, not contentious, not always looking for a fight. Quarrelsome people, they love to major on minors. All they do is want to debate, put others in their place. It's arrogant, self-serving, it's divisive. Not a lover of money. So on the one hand, that means there's contentment. Not consumerism mentality. On the other hand, it means there's generosity. There's an open hand. It means you have the right view of stuff and stewardship, and that we're stewards of all that we have, and we give an account for how we use it and, and what we accumulate. We give an account for that. Manage his own household well. Similar to the parable of the talents. If you, if you can't do it in a smaller arena, you're not able to do it in a larger arena. So maybe not all men are eligible to be elders, leaders in the church, but all are eligible to be leaders in their home. It's this high dignity given to leadership in the home. I think what it means is in an elder's home, there should be a very real sense that they, they love, they cherish, they lead, they protect. There's, there's discipline in the home. There's nurturing. It doesn't mean children are super Christians. I mean, not at all. I don't, I don't think that. I do think, though, 
the children who are in the home, I'm not talking about adult children, but I'm talking about children who are in the home, that they're not bitter or rebellious or angry. Do they show respect, not contempt? If they do, there's a problem. The home's not managed well. There's a stewardship problem. There's a leadership problem, if that's the case. In, in, in that case, undivided attention needs to be given at home. There's not any room to, to lead anywhere else. Not a recent convert, he goes on. There's some time for spiritual maturity. Grace has been experienced in conversion. You know, when you come to faith, you, you, you experience grace, but there needs to be time for grace to be experienced in sanctification. You know, so when failure comes, working through, not running back to the law and performance and trying to make amends to God, and, but applying the truth of the grace of the gospel by faith and confessing your sin and not trying to pay for your sin or make up for your sin, but confessing your sin and trusting that by faith that He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, not because you vowed to never do it again, but because His Son, Jesus, died on the cross. That's why He forgives you. That's maturity. When we begin, when that begins to soak in to our life, the gospel, not just for justification, what we call salvation, but for for sanctification, for our growth. Thought of well by outsiders, having a good reputation, integrity, not self-righteous or arrogant, but you have the aroma of Christ, not the B.O. of self-righteousness. Aren't you tired of that? I'm tired of that, aren't you? Or the sewer smell of of licentiousness, of, of moral license. I'm tired of that too, aren't you? But that grace has gotten a hold of you and you love Christ and it's, it's not a put on that ends up being a turn off, but a love for Christ that's marked by humility and genuine care towards others. And you know what? And that you know outsiders, that you know non-believers. Not isolated from the world around you and you listen to them, engage them and and the better way of the gospel comes out in your conversations. And those are the qualifications. Paul's letter to Titus, he gives a similar list. First Peter 5 talks about the role of shepherding. And Paul goes to talk about deacons. Very similar list. Deacons serve. When they serve, they exemplify for us what it means to be in Christ. Well, I got three minutes left, and so what I want to do is I want to talk about a one word that Paul uses at the beginning of this passage, and it's the word aspire. Did you see it? If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
The, the word literally means to, to stretch out with both hands or to, or to reach for, or to be eager for. I mean, it might sound a little arrogant, I mean, a little self-serving, a little shouldn't we be suspicious of those that aspire to leadership kind of deal, right? Whether elder or deacon. But I think what Paul means here is this. It's not the desire for position or authority. That, that's not what's being desired there, but a desire to protect the church, a desire to serve God's people, a desire to care for the body of Christ. There's this scene in Acts 20. Paul is, he, he knows, he's, he's, Acts 20, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He has the boat driver pull over to the shore at Miletus. He sends a runner to Ephesus 20 miles. The guy's like, really? He's like, yeah, go there and get the elders. It's like, you know elders, you know they're old, right? Yeah, but go get them. So he goes and gets them, brings them back. They're at the shoreline, Acts 20. Paul, with the elders of Ephesus, they know they're never going to see him again. He knows he's never going to see them again. It's beautiful. And he loves them. And, they, and they, he says this. She's, and he's giving them the talk. You know, he's, he's, it's yours now. These people are going to need you. You have to protect them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Listen to how he says it. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I always tell the elders, Look, I don't know how you think you got here. Paul says the Holy Spirit appointed you. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus and how He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's what it means to aspire. Listen, for some of you, you hear these words, you hear God's Word taught and you hear hear the call of the gospel and it stirs in you. There's a desire, an aspiration. There's a call. In one sense, we're all called to ministry. It's the Great Commission. But we're all called to ministry as believers. And in another sense, we're all leaders. We all have influence. Wherever we are, we're stewards of that influence, that leadership. We'll give an account. At the same time, there's a call to leadership in the church to Give your life away for the church, that kind of leadership. Called a ministry. It looks different ways. Sometimes it's vocational ministry. Other times, most of the time, it's this kind of ministry. Elder ministry, deacon ministry, life group ministry, where you're shepherding other people. And for some of you, that stirs in you. I feel that. I feel the Holy Spirit drawing me to that. Well, man, I could never do that. I I could never do that. 
Moses was called by God. He has five responses to God. Do you know what they are? First one he said to God, he said, I can't do it, I'm nobody. Second time he said, I, I can't do it, I have no authority. Second, third time he says, I can't, I have no credibility. It's all in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. The fourth time God comes and tells him about it, he says, I can't do it, I don't have any talent. Fifth time he said, hey, look, I just got to be honest with you, God. I don't really want to go. And every single time God responds to him, he doesn't say, oh, no, Moses, it's not that you're nobody. You are somebody. I mean, you're Moses. I mean, Charlton Heston's going to play you. He doesn't say that to him. God doesn't turn around and build Moses' self-esteem. He's not going to build your self-esteem either, by the way, if you're waiting for that. Thank goodness. Oh, it's not your authority problem. Moses, you speak, people listen. Oh, it's credibility. You're Moses. People will listen to you. Oh, Moses, talent. you got talent, Moses. You're talented, man. He doesn't say any of that stuff to him. He answers every single one of those objections. You know how he answers it? Not with Moses' adequacies, but with God's absolute sufficiency. Doesn't matter if you're nobody, Moses. I'm not a nobody. I am. Moses, you don't need your own authority. You have my authority. You don't need your own credibility. You have mine. Moses, you don't need your talents. In fact, I do better with people who are weak because in their weakness, my strength shines. And you just think you don't want to go. greatest adventure of your life. Some of you may be feeling as a, as a church here committed to building leaders, a call to leadership. It's a good thing, Paul says. It's noble to aspire to. So I'd ask you this morning to listen to the Spirit. Is He doing something in you? Is the Spirit of God moving in you? Men or women. And if you're a woman, you say, well, I don't have a place for leadership. Yeah, you do. Talk to me about this. I'm not talking about being an elder. But there's places for women to lead in this context, and we desperately need biblical leadership, men and women, to step in and lead and care for this body of Christ. And so if you, if you feel that, man, find an elder and say, listen, I, I want to lead. I feel that. I feel that aspiration. And that's, this is noble, and so here I am in all my nobility. Or email me, or Fritz, or Todd, or Brent. Find an elder on the back page and email them out of the blue. We, we need you. We desperately, we desperately need you. All right, I'm done. Todd, are we going to sing? Oh, we're going to sing. All right, so I'm going to pray. We're going to sing.
it was raining anyway. Now it's not. I did you a favor. All right, Father, thanks for the morning. Thank you for this letter to Timothy. Thank you that you love us. You've given us a better way. You've given us the gospel. You've given us the church and leaders to guard us and protect us and keep us from ourselves, our, the error of our own ways, our, from the rightness of our own eyes. So we thank you for that. And I pray that you would do what you would do by the power of your Spirit hearts and minds of the believers here at this church across all these campuses as you call men and women to, to lead others, care for others, shepherd others, teach others serve others Father have your way with us guard us, protect us, make us healthy for our good, for your glory gospel to go out to this community and around the world. That's what we want. So we ask you. The only way we can to do that in Jesus' name and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Sing. You are the